In the first part of this look at the Joffrey Ballet's production of The Nutcracker, I met Greg Cameron, the president and CEO, and talked about the business end of the production, and Cody Chen, the production director. Now that there is a production in place and a place to actually do it, it's time to bring costumes and music into the mix. Um, if we're having a really busy season elsewhere and Nutcracker isn't getting as much TLC, uh, we will not. sometimes we won't start it until after the fall program has closed and we'll just spend a month or five weeks or something getting it, getting it up on its feet. I'm Keith Conrad and this is Bringing Up the Lights, a podcast where I'll be giving you a look behind the curtain at the people involved in creating some of the biggest stage productions in the United States. For Christmas in this three-part series, I'll be following along with the Joffrey Ballet in Chicago as they prepare for their production of The Nutcracker in December of 2021. Ellie Cody serves as the costume manager for the Joffrey Ballet, in the previous episode, we learned production director Cody Chen didn't exactly follow a linear path into ballet production. But for Ellie, this is pretty much all she ever wanted to do. Well, I started sewing when I was about four years old, and so I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I also was a, was a, a ballet dancer when I was a child and through high school, and so when I went to college, I knew I wanted to make ballet costumes. Um, wow. So I studied that specifically and learned how to make tutus, and I worked with the Milwaukee Ballet, and then when I moved to Chicago, uh, I got uh, a job as a stitcher um, in the Joffrey shop, and after working as a stitcher for a while, I moved on to the costume manager position. I've been there for seven years. The Joffrey Ballet performs at the Nutcracker every year, but that doesn't necessarily make Ellie's job any easier. The nice thing about Nutcracker is since we do it every year, you know, it's kind of just like pulling it out of the closet, um, you know, and getting it ready. So there's certain things we have to do every year, and that's just sort of TLC on everything. We make sure that there aren't any major um, things that need to be repaired, like holes or hems falling out or closures falling off, that sort of thing. But then also each year we tackle a couple of big projects. Um, the idea with Nutcracker is trying to keep it its long, its life um, fresh for as long as possible. So we don't want it to get to the point of complete disrepair. Uh, so that takes a little bit of upkeep every year. So for instance, this year we made new um, tutus for the Merletons, or the we made new tutus for the Venetian, Venetian dancers, and then we made new walnuts for the, the children in the Mother Nutcracker scene. We made new tights for the icicles and the soldiers, and we did one other thing. Oh, we made new pants for the flower men. So all of that stuff is, is different every year. Next year we're gonna try to do a refresh on the snowflakes. The year before we did a refresh on the, the Wild West women and the Buffalo Bill segment. So it kind of varies from year to year. We focus on something different and the end goal, hopefully, is that it's just sort of a rotating cycle of repair. <laughs> Actually, the fact that the costumes need to be used year in and year out can present some unique challenges for Ellie and her team. Some of them are used every single night, so they'll do all the shows, all the rehearsals, and some of them are only used maybe five times a season. Mm -hmm. It depends on the role, it depends on the casting. So each, um, most of the roles have multiples of each costume. So for the golden statue, we have three golden statue costumes, and they're shared amongst all of the dancers. So depending on who's dancing, how many shows, who's sharing with who, you know, one of those dresses might get used way more than another one. Um, and that changes from year to year too as the casting fluctuates, as um, injuries happen or 
Um, you know, there's so many other things that kind of go into it. Uh, but it's the same with the core costumes. Um, for the for the fair visitor men, for instance, there are 12 costumes. So there's four extra it, it, that exist that aren't on stage at any given time. So sometimes one costume will get have to be used every night, and then sometimes there'll be a costume that gets a night off. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a matrix to try to figure all of that out. So the lifespan just sort of depends on how long it's, how, how much it's being used. Totally, mm-hmm. totally. So at the end of the season, uh, we usually do a really good reassess of how Nutcracker aged uh, and, and make a plan for what needs to be priority refreshed the next season. So how does the process of creating costumes for the Nutcracker production every Christmas compared to the rest of the season? Well, if it's something new that we're building from scratch, we'll start the process uh, a little bit further out in advance, and there's just a different amount of prep involved. Um, for Nutcracker, you know, we have most of the materials or we know what they are, so we can just get to right to it. Um, if we're building something new, it's usually working with the designer to figure out what those materials are, sourcing them, uh, getting samples, ordering, deciding, and then also building mock-ups of all of the costumes to make sure that the designs that are going to work on the body and that they move correctly and fit and are proportional. Um, and then from that point, we can go ahead and build the costume. Um, and that's that. You know, either either super complex or super simple, depending on the design. But it's a little bit different than just altering um, or refreshing. It's a little bit more time-consuming mm-hmm. um, it's a just it's also just kind of a different mindset you're kind of going into it with not the familiarity of Nutcracker we're all in the costume shop very familiar with Nutcracker the ins and outs of every costume and they're all very like old friends you know you see that one dress and you're like oh yeah that's the one with the weird hook at the neck that always falls out or you know whatever it is like it's you're very we're very familiar with them but when it's new clothes there that familiarity isn't there so there's a lot more of trying to foresee what could possibly be a problem and um, and then reacting quickly when there is a problem that needs to get fixed. What's the normal time frame for a production? This year we started working on it in August because we were making new walnuts and that was a big project. So we started working on it in August and we've been working on it kind of off and on all fall um, whenever we had a little bit of free time around, around the fall program. Um, if we're having a really busy season elsewhere and Nutcracker isn't getting as much TLC, uh, we will not. Sometimes we won't start it until after the fall program has closed, and we'll just spend a month or five weeks or something getting it, getting it up on its feet. Um, so it, it really, there's so many variables that go into it. When we have a little bit of extra time in the season, um, it's the perfect time to spend to spend it on Nutcracker because it's always a good investment. So how does that compare to a production that's starting completely from scratch? If we're building something from scratch and it's a bigger project, then it can be much longer. Um, if we're if we're building out uh, a story ballet, for instance, you know we might get the designs a year or eighteen months even in advance and start working on on that process, um, and then work on the actual sewing and construction for a good solid year before before we get to the stage. Um, but if we're building, you know, for instance, uh, you know, we did some, some, some rebuilds in the fall for our, our production of birthday variations, and we just worked on those for a couple of weeks because they were, um, it was a much smaller project. 
when I talked to Ellie, the Joffrey Ballet was about two weeks or so from opening out in the Nutcracker. Generally speaking, where is the production at this point in the process? We are almost complete. We had our final fitting this morning for the last, the last dancer who needed to try on a Nutcracker costume, and we're packing up crates and getting things finalized. Um, everything has been ordered that needs to arrive, and almost all the alterations are done. There's a couple pairs of pants still hanging on the rack that need to be hemmed, but we're very close. We're very close. We should be able to have most of the, crap, the, most of the crates packed up by the end of this week. What sort of impact has COVID had on the process? Is it still the elephant in the room, or at this point is it mostly back to business as usual? When we were first getting started, back last fall, we were back in the studios doing some digital work and doing fittings it, it, when the pandemic was still kind of fresh was a little nerve-wracking. It was just not, we weren't really sure what the, you know, we didn't want to get anyone's way too much or, you know, you don't want to step on anyone's toes or make anyone feel uncomfortable. Um, but now that we are sort of used to the protocols and we are, everything feels pretty normal, um, it doesn't feel all that different. Um, I mean, we have our masks and everyone's washing their hands between working on on costumes and after we do fittings and all of that. But um, at this point, it feels it feels kind of like the new normal. For Nutcracker, we have some less less children in the show, so that'll feel a little different once we're at the theater. Um, but not too different. You almost need like a like one of those bomb disposable robots, except one that can measure people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would that would do it. There's no way we can't get up close to somebody with what our job is. Yeah. Um, so we try to do it as respectfully as possible, and not to get, not to stay in their space for too long or anything. Um, but but I mean, just the fact of the matter is, if you're fitting clothes on somebody, you have to be close to them. Yeah. Now the production has a place to perform and costumes, but music is a big piece of the puzzle too. And that's where music director Scott Speck comes in. Scott may be one of the busiest people in the theater business in Chicago. I have a really wonderfully, excitingly active musical life here in Chicago um, that's come about over the last 10 years or so. It was in 2010 that I became music director of the Joffrey Ballet. Um, I had conducted ballet quite a bit in the past. In fact, some 20 years ago, I worked with Ashley Weider when we were both in secondary positions at the San Francisco Ballet. He was the associate to the artistic director, mm -hmm. and I was the secondary conductor. And we worked together a lot at that point and premiered a lot of ballets together. One of them that we premiered was Othello. The uh, music was by Elliot Goldenthal and fantastic choreography by Lar Lubavitch. It's just one of those ballets where the whole is so much greater than the sum of its parts and I really feel that it's one of the greatest ballets of the last 30 years. Um, and when Ashley became artistic director here, he decided he wanted to really stick his neck out and put on a production of Othello here. I say stick his neck out because the, you know, the community here didn't know that ballet and it was extremely expensive to put on, but with all kinds of sets and projections and a huge monster orchestra. And he decided that he would love to have a conductor who had conducted it before. So he called me. Uh, I came as a guest conductor to do Othello and it was a wonderful success. It was, I just still have such amazing memories of it. Um, and that led to more guest conducting. It was Prokofiev's Cinderella, which was the next thing we did together in that season. And that very easily and organically turned into a music director 
position here with the Joffrey Ballet. At around the same time, um, I started working with the Chicago Philharmonic Orchestra and eventually became their artistic director. And then actually for eight years, we had a marvelous collaboration where the Chicago Philharmonic was the orchestra of the Joffrey Ballet in the pit, so that I, as artistic director of one and music director of the other, uh, was able to negotiate this wonderful symbiosis between the two organizations. Now, um, the Joffrey Ballet has moved to the, as you know, its operations to the Chicago uh, Lyric Opera, and we're using the Lyric Opera Orchestra, which is a wonderful orchestra. Actually, quite a few of the same musicians that are, were in the Chicago Philharmonic. Um, is there a lot of crossover between, you know, there's a number of different orchestras in Chicago, and I would right. imagine uh, right. a lot of cities, is there a lot of crossover between them? Well, the, the freelance musician pool here in Chicago is second to none. It's phenomenal. Um, and the Chicago Philharmonic itself actually has as members more than 200 of those musicians who are called upon in different configurations for whatever the need is for various kinds of concerts. And so the overlap with Lyric Opera is, is huge. These are also musicians who often play with Chicago Symphony and many other local orchestras. People might think exclusively about dancing when they think of ballet, so what role does music play in the production? I come to this from Certainly from the musical perspective, I learned how to be uh, an instrumental conductor. My background is in symphonic music. Ashley knew this. This is what Ashley wanted for a music director. He wanted someone who was going to approach it from the musical point of view rather than necessarily from the dance point of view. And that has led to a lot of really interesting discussions and some, you know, give and take, obviously, in musical versus dance considerations when there is any difference of opinion in something that we need to talk about. But I love the fact that Ashley Weeder, first of all, he's a musician himself. He learned to play flute and cello when he was younger. He's got an extraordinarily musical sensibility. He has pushed tirelessly for the inclusion of live music in as many programs as possible. Now, pretty much every program that we do, that didn't used to be the case, but he's pushed for it and really gotten it through despite the fact that this is a huge financial outlay to be able to pay for that, right? An orchestra for the Nutcracker might cost half a million dollars, something like that. And that's money that you could use on other things, on bringing in a great choreographer and so on. But he realizes that, you know, when, when you have live music, it adds a completely new dimension to ballet. You know the word karaoke means empty orchestra, literally. And, <laughs> and so to have a full orchestra, to have a real orchestra, um, is, is so important. And it's just, I have undying gratitude that Ashley has that focus in the ballet company. So obviously he wants a conductor who comes from that musical point of view, who's trying to bring the best musical qualities to the orchestra. So Ellie knew her career path pretty early in life. So what made Scott decide on music as a career path? I've always been interested in music. My parents were not professional musicians, but both of them were amateur musicians. My dad was actually an excellent amateur jazz clarinetist. Uh, next to Benny Goodman, he probably had the nicest tone of any jazz clarinetist <laughs> that I've heard. Um, and uh, there was always classical music playing on records or CDs in the house, so I grew up being familiar with it. Um, when I started uh, thinking about what I was going to major in in college, I looked at the course catalog, and the music classes seemed to be 
the descriptions seemed to be printed in technicolor, whereas the other ones were in black and white. It was like there was something about this that was really drawing me in. As far as conducting, um, that's, you know, I started working with small groups as a pianist. Um, and as you work with a small group, you know, someone sort of naturally becomes the leader of that group. And I found myself with more and more musical ideas, wanting to express them. And then the groups grew and grew. And next thing you knew, I needed a baton to, uh, to conduct. And, um, and it happened very slowly, very organically. There was never a moment where I was six when I said, I'm going to be a conductor. Yeah. I know there are people like that. That wasn't me at all. It just, just happened slowly. Um, and it's, it's been a marvelous process because... I don't feel that I'm even halfway through the improvement journey. So far in this process, I've heard from a lot of people about the impact of the COVID shutdown. It ended up making a lot of people rethink their career path, either because they needed money immediately to survive, or just because they had some downtime to reevaluate their priorities for the first time in quite some time. I really feel for the dancers who for a year and a half were not able to perform in front of live audiences. You know, for a professional ballet dancer, that could be 15% of your career mm -hmm. that they weren't able to actually get out and express themselves. With a conductor, on the other hand, it's sort of the opposite. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I'm only now beginning to understand what music is all about. And I feel that conductors get better and better and better as they get, on, get older. Mm -hmm. um, Leopold Stokowski famously had a contract to conduct when he was 100. He didn't quite make it, but he had a contract. Well, I mean, John Williams is still alive. Uh going strong still, right still working probably every day almost 90 yeah. years old yeah. yeah so so you know a conductor if you have a good orchestra um a, a conductor can continue to be useful and in fact does continue to improve throughout his or her entire lifetime now that things are back up and running if not quite back to normal what is the production process like for the music perspective well let me talk about a normal production and then let me talk about nutcracker specifically because you know, although this may be baked in, there are two things. First of all, it's been two years since we've done it. Mm -hmm. And second of all, it's a new production. It's only about five years old. So, yeah. um, but with a normal ballet, I will start studying it maybe about a year in advance. And the first thing I'll do, if I can find one, is watch a video of the ballet. That Unless it's a world premiere, there's probably a commercially available video of it being danced really beautifully. So I get an idea of the of the ballet values that are being emphasized in this particular work, and also the overall emotional arc that we're trying to bring out. Then I'll get myself a score. The score, of course, is the book that has all the musicians' lines in it. Every single note of every single musician is in the score. And I'll spend several months studying it purely as a piece of music so that I have the score in my body and in my mind as second nature without having to think about it. And at that point, then, when I come into rehearsals, where the dancers have now gotten to a quite advanced stage, and they're almost ready to do it at a complete concert tempo, I can watch them and mark into my score very specifically what needs the dancers have. That even though I'd like to make a musical phrase here, it may be that the dancer needs a breath over there too because there's a big lift and they haven't come down yet or something like that. Mm -hmm. And these are really important considerations. Um, and then I try to mold all of that into a musical arc that I feel is uh, tells a story and also makes musical sense. And that's to me the, the greatest joy when all that comes together. Then when we get in front of the, you know, the orchestra and the dancers are on the stage, 
um, there's a there's a thrill in molding the performance while maintaining the musical line that is inexorable and organic, molding the performance to the particular dancers who are on the stage. And that's where the indescribable alchemy of ballet conducting begins because it's, again, more than the sum of its parts. What the dancers do informs the music. What the musicians do informs the dancers. They're feeding off each other constantly and that's why you need live music. You can't really do the same thing. If you have a recording, you know, the dancers will dance beautifully to the recording, but they'll do it exactly the same way every time. And furthermore, every dancer, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how fast or slow they may be as dancers, has to fit the same Procrustean tempo, you know. So, yeah. so we're, uh, with live music, able to offer a lot more breath and flexibility. So once Scott has a handle on the music for a particular production, what is the rehearsal process like? We have um, two brilliant rehearsal pianists, uh, Michael Moritz, who is also our assistant conductor, and Jorge Ivars, who's just joining us for the first time from Valencia, Spain, as one of our two regular pianists. And they both are excellent musicians in their own right, but they, they know even better than I do what each dancer needs. And a large part of my preparation process involves conferring with Michael and Jorge to make sure I understand what they have learned in the day-to-day -day grind rehearsals where in these rehearsals where you know they might play one measure of music and then stop while a, while a move is perfected and then go back and do that measure ten more times before going on to measure two clearly it doesn't make sense for me to be there for all of those rehearsals but they are and they learn a lot and they can tell me what they've learned and I incorporate that into my conducting of the pieces. The thing that shocked me most about the production process at the Lyric Opera of Chicago was the four to five years it takes from beginning to end. Turns out in the ballet world, the biggest surprise is the musicians and dancers barely have a chance to even have a meet and greet before they're on stage performing. Yeah, the way that dancers and the way that musicians rehearse are so different. It's really fascinating for me to learn because coming from the musical world, I wasn't completely aware of how the dancers learn. They might start six months or a year in advance just to get the particular motions in their bodies. And of course, you know, if let's say if two musicians are playing a duet, each one can practice his or her part on their own and then they can come together and play it beautifully. But with two dancers, if one of them is lifting the other, that's an action that has to be rehearsed together. There's no way that one guy can practice you know, what's, what's, what the lift going to feel like and the woman can practice what it's going to feel like to be lifted. You, know, you, have to, yeah. you have to do it together. And so whereas the dancer's process in learning the moves, uh, the steps for a particular pas de deux, let's say, might take place over the course of weeks or months, the musicians, their process might take place over two days. Now they've, of course, reached such a high level that they're you know, excellent sight readers and they've practiced the music and so on. But as far as playing it all together as an orchestra, it's literally a two-day process. The first rehearsal is two days before the opening night. Ever been any any big surprises that that resulted from that? Or um, no, I mean a surprise might be that let's say um, the dancers do something and I have to react to it suddenly in the moment and give the downbeat quicker than I would otherwise have. Yeah. And the musicians are very astute and they see that and they immediately play the note. Yeah. But that might be a surprise for them. They might do it and then they're like, "Wow, what was that?" <laughs> you know, because they can't see what's on stage. I'm the only person in the whole hall who can see all the musicians and all the dancers. I take that responsibility very seriously. 
Now that we are about two weeks out, where do things stand with the Nutcracker? The Nutcracker was uh, this particular version, I believe, started in 2016. We yeah. did the first uh, performance of it, and that was a very long process because we had Christopher Wielden, the choreographer here, who you know brilliantly gave us this Chicago-themed Nutcracker, which seems to make so much sense. And by the way, he, I'm not even sure he was aware of this, but boy, was he excited when I told him that, um, that the actual first performance of the Nutcracker in Russia took place six days before the action of this of this ballet, which oh, is really? which is Christmas Eve, eighteen ninety-two, December twenty-fourth. The first performance was December eighteenth, eighteen ninety-two. So in theory, the music could have been played then, you know, which is yeah. you know it would have had to cross the Atlantic really quickly. Well, but I mean, the, the World's Fair went on for a while, so yeah, yeah that, that it happened. Yeah. So so this is um, very very timely. And I love the fact that it takes place, you know, during the late Romantic, right? It's, it's the late Romantic period is the latter part of the 19th century. Um, and yet it's also Chicago. And it's, it's one of the most iconic and important moments in Chicago's history, the, the World's Fair. Um, and so it's, a, it's really a thrilling, thrilling storyline that Chris Wilden has created for it and beautiful choreography. But it, you know, we had to learn all new choreography. So the first time in 2016, we spent months and months learning it, and he was in the studio day after day teaching every single step. And then we opened it in Iowa before, before performing it here. So we were at the Hancher Auditorium at the University of Iowa, did a few performances there sort of to warm it up and get it in great shape. Um, and the opening night was beautiful. And then we opened it here. Um, the other thing that was very different is that in the party scene, First of all, the party scene is not at a rich man's house as it is in every other performance of Nutcracker at some rich person's house. And Clara is an entitled rich girl who gets one more gift, right? The, the Nutcracker. In this, in this production, her name is Marie. In this one, it's a very poor family. It's a mother, there's no father, um, and little Marie and her younger brother. And they are laborers, or I should say the mother, she's a sculptor on the grounds of the World's Fair, and she ends up building or creating, designing what's going to be that big golden statue. Um, and she falls in love with the impresario. Well, I don't want to give it away. The impresario plays the Drosselmeyer character. And it's really something special and different. But because the party scene doesn't take place in an opulent mansion, but rather in a very humble shack on the grounds of a construction site, we decided that the party scene music needed to be scaled down. It could not be this full, rich Tchaikovskyan orchestra sound because that's not what they would have had at a party in a poor shack. So instead, we scaled it down for the dances in the first act to a trio, which in this version is violin, clarinet, and accordion. It's a Polish itinerant band that's been hired for the party, or maybe they're just friends and they've come over to play for the party. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know they're playing polkas and, and stuff like that that they would that they would have danced to back then, and it gives it yet another layer of resonance with this choreography that I love so much. Anyway, so the first time that was a big issue getting the trio together, getting the music to be rearranged for trio and so on. Every year thereafter, we've further refined the music a little bit, but as far as rehearsals go, we've needed fewer and fewer months or weeks of rehearsal time. And this time we were able to start most of our rehearsals after we had finished our October program uh, home. Mm -hmm. so, um, so in this particular case, a month and a half or something like that, 
um, is all we need to put everything together. Having said that, it's still a huge production, and you know it uses I don't know 100 kids or and all of that and all of the puppets and and costumes and projections and things that are in addition to the normal sets, um, and of course the added challenge of now opening it in a new venue where we've never done it before. So that's going to be very exciting this year. This year, there's the added wrinkle of moving to a new venue. So how has the partnership with Lyric Opera of Chicago changed things this time around? I think I think two things. One of them is that the size of a stage is a little bit different. So some of the projections that were made to exactly fit the stage at the Auditorium Theater mm-hmm. had to be changed in scale. The other thing, which I can't wait to find out how they're doing this, is that because the Auditorium Theater was built around the same time as the World's Fair, I think just a couple of years before, um, there are actually elements of the set design that mimic the design of the Auditorium Theater itself, like those arches of, um, of electric lights that yeah. they have. Lyric, of course, is a completely different design. So how they fit that on the Lyric Opera stage is going to be really interesting. I can't wait to see how they do it. Have there been any big challenges uh, because of COVID at this point, or is it uh, mostly business as usual? Um, the, you know, everybody is vaccinated. Everybody has to be vaccinated. Whenever anyone's not on stage, they have to be wearing a mask. So you see, you see the cast on stage. Um, they are not masked. So it looks like any, any other ballet performance would have been in the past. The orchestra downstairs, <laughs> under, under the ground in the pit, is masked when they can be, except for the brass instruments and wind instruments, which can't be. But again, everyone offstage is masked. Um, and then the other big thing is that we can't really have guests backstage because you know there has to be that guarantee that everybody has been vaccinated and we sort of have that pact with each other that we are all being responsible and looking out for each other. When the audience finally sees the Nutcracker on stage for the first time in a couple of years because of COVID, what is Ellie hoping they will notice about her department's work? Well, it'll be nice to have kids back in the audience and to, to you know, they haven't seen a show probably in a long time, and so that's really fun. It's always great to, to hear them cheering in the audience or laughing or reacting. Um, and, the, the you know, last year's holiday was not as, not we didn't have a lot of the same traditions that we normally do. So this year it feels like things are getting back to that a little bit. Um, I know for us and my wardrobe team, we have so many holiday tradition traditions being backstage at the Nutcracker because that's what we've done forever. And so not spending Christmas backstage, you know, the whole Christmas season backstage was very bizarre. We, were, we didn't know what we were doing. Um, so we're kind of relieved to be back and we can do all of our, our normal stuff now. And what is Scott hoping people with experiences they're hearing the music? Well, you know, I have to say that this is the longest I've gone in over a decade without conducting the Nutcracker. I've done it about 300 times. No, probably closer to 400 now in my life. It's certainly the piece of music that I've conducted the most. And thank goodness it's a good piece because, wow, could you imagine if it were not? <laughs> I mean, there are some Broadway shows that run for years that are nowhere near as good music. But you, you think about this, Tchaikovsky. He had two incredible gifts. One of them was... He, he wore his heart on his sleeve. He just had this amazing ability to distill his emotions into musical notes in such a way that they could be reconstituted centuries later or a century and a half later and still be equally potent, which I think is amazing. It's like his music goes from his heart to yours and he is really pouring out some, some emotion, which that, that's a real 
skill to be able to do that, to make you feel what he feels. That's, that really takes talent. The second thing is he had an incredible gift for melody. You know, here is a guy who was able to write a different, unforgettable melody just about once per minute for two hours. And that's how many amazing melodies there are in The Nutcracker. And so um, I think that's one of the reasons it's, it's so varied. It has, it's so multifaceted and it has so many familiar tunes that people just don't get tired of hearing it. And that's why it's a staple of Christmas music and has been since, you know, since it was written. Um, what am I looking forward to the most? Um, there are a couple of, uh, of musical moments that I love the most. One of them is uh, what, what is often referred to as the snow pas de deux. It, it's, it takes place just before the final waltz of the snowflakes in Act One. And the other one is the grand pas de deux, uh, which is, um, you know, in traditional versions, is between the sugar plum fairy and her cavalier. But here, it's the golden statue and the impresario uh, who fall in love. Spoiler alert. And um, that grand pas de deux, which is based on nothing but a descending G major scale, it's just a scale going down. For some reason, Tchaikovsky's able to make it into this incredible emotional uh, powerhouse every time. And that's the moment I look forward to in every performance. Bringing Up the Lights is an original series from Sound Concept Media. It's written and narrated by me, Keith Conrad. I also had help putting together the podcast from the team at the Joffrey Ballet in Chicago and the Silverman Group 